0: Don't settle for the sexuality that's been handed to you, or that you've discovered by accident, or that is challenged by shame and judgment. With some attention and intention, you can discover what turns you on, what turns you off, and how to connect more deeply through sex and intimacy. That's what's in store for you on today's episode. When it comes to talking about things like this with your partner, it's helpful to be able to communicate effectively and to stay connected no matter how challenging the conversation is. To help you out, I've put together my guide for my top three relationship communication secrets. This isn't generic how to communicate advice. These are actions specifically designed to help you communicate with the people that you're closest to in your life. To download the free guide, just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Also, I just wanted to let you know that I'm really grateful for the support of people like you in keeping relationship alive going. My goal is for this show to be the best resource available for you in having a successful, thriving relationship. So if you're finding the show to be helpful to you or to people you love, please consider a donation. Every little bit counts. So to choose something that feels right for you, just visit neilsatin.com support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And if this isn't a good time for you to contribute, then you can still make a difference by telling people you know about the show, linking to our episodes on social media, and by rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you for all that you can do to help support Relationship Alive and to foster the mission of healthy relationships all around the world. And this week, I'd like to thank Sylvia, Elise, Drew, Lydia, Anne, Valerie, Jules, Angie, Genevieve, Cynthia, Maribeth, and Kent. Thank you all so much for your generous support of Relationship Alive. And just a reminder that we have a group on Facebook for you to find other people who listen to the podcast where we're creating a safe space to get support for you in your relationships just come join the relationship alive community on facebook and lastly before we dive in if you have any burning questions that you'd like me to answer on the podcast record yourself asking the question and email that recording to me the address you can use is questions at relationshipalive.com. okay that's it let's get on with the show Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Let's talk some more about sex today. And I think it's really important, if for no other reason than the statistic that I'm pulling out of the book written by today's guest, um, that when you have a successful sex life with your partner, that that accounts for, say, 15 to 20% of your overall happiness quotient. I'm sure I'm not using the exact term there. But when you have a dissatisfying sexual life uh, with your partner, that can account for 50 to 75% of your dissatisfaction in your marriage, if I got that statistic right. So just think about that for a minute. If you're unhappy in the way that you're connecting sexually with your partner or with your partners, um, then that's going to cause potentially a lot of distress for you. And what's at the root often of our dissatisfaction is the very foundation that we have, the way that we see ourselves as sexual beings, the way we operate in the world, the scripts that have been handed us and that we're enacting either consciously or unconsciously or that we're trying to live up to um, that can so often be a source of not only unhappiness but the sense of disconnection from who you actually are as a sexual being in the world and that brings with it a whole host of things like shame or even just questions self-judgment and ultimately um, potentially dissatisfaction in terms of your relationships so Let's tackle this head on and talk about how to reclaim and restructure who you are as a sexual being with today's esteemed guest. She's been with us on the show before. Her name is Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Uh, She's a professor at Northwestern and also a clinical psychologist who works with individuals and couples. Last time she was here, she was talking about her book, Loving Bravely, and if you want to hear that episode, you can visit neilsatin.com slash bravely, and it is episode number 142, if you're just flipping through your podcast app, and uh, she's here today to talk about her new book, which is called Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want. It's a book written primarily for women, and at the same time, it has so much valuable stuff in it in terms of no matter where you are in the gender spectrum um, to uh, reframe how you think about your sexuality and how you reclaim it for yourself. Uh, as usual, we will have a transcript for today's episode. You can download it by visiting neilsatin.com sexy. That one's not going to be hard to remember. <laughs> And as always, you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. So let's dive right in. Alexandra Solomon, it's such a treat to have you back with us here on Relationship Alive.
1: It's so nice to be with you. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Let's talk for, let's just first um, unearth there's something unusual about taking sexy back, which is that you've taken the word sexy and you've made it a noun. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, if you can explain what I'm even talking about (laughs) and maybe explain your choice around that um, so that it'll make sense as we move through this conversation.
1: Yes. So one of the first sort of central ideas in this book is that there is a world of difference between being sexy and being sexual. So women have been taught and trained to either be sexy or to be afraid of sexy, to, of being sexy, of being too sexy, not sexy enough, and that for women that word is oftentimes a question. Right? Do you find me sexy? It's a question posed in the gaze of another. Mm-hmm. And and when that is the lens through which one experiences one's sexuality, then sex becomes a performance, right? A sort of earning of that sense that you find me worthy, adequate, good. <clears throat> and it's different than being sexual. Sexual is a cultivation from the inside of my own connection with the erotic that I generate within me and then share with a partner. And so in this book, we are taking sexy back. We're taking back the idea of sexy and it becomes, as you said, a noun. So this book really is couples therapy between the reader and her sexy, her sexuality, her sexual self. And the questions are, how well do you know that aspect of you? Do you even know that is an aspect of you? What is that aspect of you wanting, yearning, and what ways is it hurting? And what needs to be kind of unearthed and processed? So throughout the book, it is about really understanding and listening from within to that part of self that I think women are typically told really isn't Theirs or shouldn't be looked at. Good girls don't <laughs> look at that. Um, so it's a, a reframing, and as you're saying. It's it's a reclamation, a taking back.
0: Right, and and you talk about the that being torn, and this is probably familiar for a lot of people who are are listening. That um, you can be torn between wanting to really own your sexuality, but if you do that too much, then that also creates a shift potentially in how people see you and um and so there's this burden of like how do you own your sexuality without it stigmatizing you
1: exactly right that's that sort of razor thin line between being perceived as prudish and being god forbid slutty right so this sort of mm-hmm. razor thin line that again keeps a woman from connecting with herself, right? It becomes this sort of question of how am I being perceived? And the moment that's the focus, it cuts us off from being able to experience pleasure, experience mindfulness, articulate a boundary that is really from a place of truth, rather than fear. And so then the entire possibility of cultivating a sex life that is healing, rewarding, connecting, uplifting, life-affirming, is impossible, right? Because there's no, there's no foundation to start from.
0: Right, um, can you just talk for a minute about where this book was born from and, and maybe the ways that you've seen women uh, confront problems in terms of like being disconnected from their sexuality, from their sexy, and uh, and what that process of reclamation looks like for them.
1: This, this book was born from a number of places. It was born from, I think, the way in which in my training as a licensed clinical psychologist and a couples therapist, I think the models that I w- was taught were that, you know, when you're sitting with a couple, help them talk more nicely to each other, help them argue less, and then the sex is gonna is, will follow, right? You don't have to directly talk about sex. And there's a way in which that paradigm reinforced, I think, a message that I carried within me for a long time that, like, sex is not a polite topic. It really shouldn't be talked about or looked at. And if you're curious about it, something is wrong with you. So I think there were ways in which that message from my field kind of reinforced what I had done to myself my whole life of just feeling like, feeling simultaneously fascinated by this entire world and topic and then feeling like it wasn't, that wasn't really polite to be interested in or fascinated about. And so my own evolution of wanting to integrate love and sex within the work I do with couples within my own life and then just I mean the work that I've done at Northwestern with graduate students and undergraduate students and being smacked again and again with my awareness of how inadequate sex education in our country is and how my students are sitting in front of me and I would you know I would give a lecture in my marriage 101 course about sex and basically invite them into this idea That sex is simultaneously a behavior, right? It's a thing that we do, a set of erotically charged behaviors. Mm -hmm. And it's also this really powerful gateway into some of the most profound longings and questions that we have as humans. And just even that notion was radical to many of my students who had only ever talked about sex as something that is dangerous, dirty, forbidden, fearful, or or titillating, right? And like really central. But not this sort of wholehearted aspect of self, an aspect of relationship. And so all of that kind of created this. And I think also the fact that we were living through this massive upheaval around gender and power with the Me Too movement. And so I think it was like this coming together of all of this where this, this book basically wouldn't leave me alone. Like I felt like mm-hmm. I chose to write Loving Bravely. And I felt like this book was like are you ready now? Can we go now? Can you just you know and it became like easier to just sit down and like create the table of contents than it was to just, you know, keep <laughs> keep forestalling it.
0: Right, right. <laughs> it yeah, felt really could,
1: urgent. It felt really urgent to me.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so true. I'm so glad your book was birthed and and is and by the time every by the time you're listening to this interview it will be out. It's it's coming out February second groundhogs day um of 2020 so you'll be able to get it and um yeah it is such an important conversation because those scripts that have been handed us around sexuality and the ways that our lack of education has gotten in the way perhaps of really getting in touch with who we are sexually and and not having a culturally accepted way of just exploring um together because so much sexuality has to happen you know behind closed doors and often in secret right like you Mm -hmm. we, we pretend it's not happening but it's obviously happening And um, so inviting the conversation into the public space and and um, one thing that I really love about your book, Taking Sexy Back, is that um, you explore all of these different dimensions of connecting into who you are as a sexual being. And, And each of those is a great gateway into understanding yourself in a new way and and then stepping forward into sexual connection with others like with that new that new knowledge
1: yes exactly exactly and it's it's not about like there is in the book, we really are looking at, as you're saying, these these scripts and these highly gendered scripts. And um, and it's not about blaming or finger pointing or God forbid, like male bashing or any of those. It's not that at all, right? The the ways in which we're given these gendered messages cut all of us off from living wholeheartedly and fully. It, I just couldn't tackle all of it in one book. But I mean, you could speak to this, like as a, as a boy and a man, boys and men are given horrific messages around their own sexuality, right? There's sort of this, this you know, it's one What drives me crazy about these dress code laws that schools or, you know, rules that schools will do, right? This idea that girls' shorts have to be this length and girls' tank top straps have to be this width. And one of the things it does is it reinforces this idea, this message to boys that your sexuality is so dangerous and so out of control that the world has to be protected from from you, from the power of your sexual energy versus teaching boys that they – sure erotic energy courses through you but here's how you ground it and here's how you harness it and here's how you boundary it and here's how you treat it with respect and if those were the tools that we gave to you know i think that's just i don't i don't know i haven't grown up in this lifetime Mm -hmm. in the masculine so i didn't have those messages but i don't know what that does you know and that was the, the early messages that you were given was this fear of being perceived as creepy or dangerous like i just think it's it's all problematic and it and it keeps people coming whether it's you know, male bodies or female bodies or one of each coming together, it keeps those bodies from coming together in a way where each person can feel integrated and ready to step into that space of of intimacy and closeness.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why I think your book is a valuable resource for whoever on Mm -hmm. the spec, wherever you are on the spectrum. I mean, I did find myself reading it and nodding for each chapter and being like, yeah, like guys need this just as much and mm-hmm. um that's been a definitely a journey for me a, as a as an adult has been um reclaiming my own desires my and and where those things emerge at different uh different places on the on the spectrum as well mm-hmm. um in what you were just describing i was just thinking about yeah how men uh in many cases, need to learn how to be in touch with their bodies and with um, with res- receptivity in mm-hmm. sex and really being attuned. And because they're so conditioned to be pursuers and mm-hmm. achievers throughout life, but definitely in the sexual realm as well. And um, and for for women, I think part of that reclaiming is also being willing to engage in. In seizing your desire and, and owning it and, and being, being willing to do that just like any guy would. Um, and it's, we're wrestling, of course, with what's culturally acceptable, you know, back to the very first thing we were talking about. Um, but how beautiful it can be when two people come together and each person owns who they are, what they want, what their fears are, what their desires are. What feels good, what doesn't feel good, and they and when they can do it in a way that doesn't um, that doesn't judge the other. I mean, right. we all need that when we're that's in the right. bedroom. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. And and it makes sense that we have gotten stuck because the information has gotten stuck. Like one of the things that was so interesting in the research for the book was to look at, you know, this book couldn't have been written 20 years ago because we've had a burgeoning of science around female sexuality, right? So we, for years, remain willfully ignorant about female Female sexual anatomy, even right. So, mm-hmm. medical medical anatomy textbooks would blur out the clitoris, and it wasn't, you know, fully mapped, fully imaged until really, really recently, like 20 years ago. Recently, so it was, you know, the clitoris was thought of as this like little button. When in fact, it's this larger structure that extends deep into um, into the body, and is the potential for pleasure um, is in- incredible. In fact, it's, that's the only <laughs> the only job that the clitoris has is is pleasure. And so what might be different if a woman came into her sexuality, knowing that and honoring it? And what if then sexual scripts were built to really honor that part of a woman's body in a way that the traditional heterosexual script, which, you know, we as a culture have really held up one particular sex act, right? We've held up penetrative sex as the most sex. There's sort of this hierarchy of sex acts. We learn it on the playground in elementary school, first base and second base and third base and home runs. So this whole kind of script around like where, how far you're trying to get and how far you're going with this goal being penetrative sex, which the research shows tends to not be the most orgasm producing part of the, the realm of sexual behaviors because it's not, it's not the the most, it doesn't maximize clitoral, clitoral stimulation potentially. For some women it does, for others it doesn't. But just this idea that if we only have one storyline, what are we limiting for for any of the bodies in the bedroom? As you're saying, like men exploring receptivity and not having to be in charge and not having to perform and having their own, um, like being not so limited by the ideas of what they ought to be doing in the bedroom. And so just just the opportunity to deconstruct all of that And challenge it and push back a little bit is really important and really healing. And that's what we found. I had this amazing team of graduate students and undergraduate students with me as we were researching and writing. And we moved through a lot of sadness, a lot of anger, you know, at sort of the, the limits that have been put on people's experiences. And then, you know, to connect the loop back to what you said in the beginning, that it, it affects our relationships. If we can't cultivate erotic connection in our intimate relationships, they're going to suffer, right? Having a, a really fun sex life kind of buffers a couple <laughs> against the, the storms and the, and the annoyances and the irritations of, you know, partnership.
0: Right, right. Just one thing that came up for me um, about that question of anatomy and and yes. how we've learned that. Um, I did want to mention for you listening that way back, this is one of my earliest episodes, episode 23, we had Sherry Winston on the show. She wrote uh, Women's Anatomy of Arousal. So that's another great doorway into this question of like, how does feminine sexuality work and also what is literally happening like what parts are there um to uh to work with um and to enjoy so um it's so important to to uh, increase your awareness of what's there and how it operates and to not be driven by like old stories like the the love button or um or what you see in porn which um is again occasionally um informative, but it's not designed to be informative in generally, uh, generally. Right. So um, there are some genres of porn that are probably better for what we're talking about here, um, mm-hmm. but that's probably not the majority of them at this moment. You'd, you'd have to seek it out. I would think the feminist porn and
1: exactly um, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, um, at the back of the book, there's a resource guide and we did include some, um, some, some, yeah, feminist ethical sort of carefully curated, um, erotic, you know, places for erotic materials. Cause right. You're right. It's not a, you can't paint it with a, with a broad brush, but that's a, it's a very different era of erotic materials, right? We're living in like free framing 24 seven porn. And a lot of it isn't, as you're saying, created with intentionality in mind and really honoring like the science of women's bodies, the realities of women's bodies. Um, And and that can be another than force of um, restriction, right? That I should, it looks like I should like this behavior and I don't like this behavior. How do I reconcile that? And oftentimes the way we reconcile it is thinking something's wrong with us, feeling ashamed.
0: Right. You mentioned someone in your book that you were working with who really wanted to like hookup culture and... And, um, and she came to you with this mission of like there's something going on, mm-hmm. like this, is, this culture surrounds me and maybe it would be helpful if you explained like what you mean by hookup culture versus um, conscious casual sex culture or all the different possibilities there. Um, but you talk about how she was really unhappy and came to you wanting to figure out if there was a way to be happy in that, in that world. So let's, let's start there maybe.
1: Sure. So, hookup culture is a is a term that we associate oftentimes with college campuses, and um, and the idea that oftentimes um, physical intimacy, sexual intimacy, comes first, and then emotional intimacy is sort of retrofitted, um, so that it, so that people are kind of finding each other sexually. Oftentimes, um, hookups are alcohol fueled, not a ton of communication, and there's a sense like the sort of there's sort of an uh, um, an aura or a sense or a feeling that you should like it, that that's, you should like that and you kind of have to like it. And in fact, it's the only pathway into intimate relationship. And so, right, the student was in the first book, we we um, work with a name, connect, choose process, right? So she's like trying so hard to use this change process to make herself go from hating hookups. In fact, she would hook up with a, um, a guy at a party and then go home and like wash her lips or like anywhere he had touched her. Um, just felt really dirty and, and awful. And so she was trying so hard to move, what she thought she needed to do is move through the discomfort so she'd get good at this thing that in her mind, and I think in the minds of lots of young people, you should be good at, like you should be able to do this. And it feels, the idea is that it is sexual liberation. It is, or it's just is necessary. It's just what you have to do. And so we I really what I wanted her to do really was honor the wisdom of her body. Her body was communicating to her so clearly, right? Feeling like her lips were numb afterwards. This could not the data could not be clearer that she was really overriding something powerful inside of her body. And in fact, the research around hookup culture shows that young people are tolerating it but not really reveling in it, not really like deeply, deeply enjoying it. It just feels like it's, it's the necessary pathway. And so that was, um, but I do make a distinction between right, hooking up and then conscious casual sex. Cause there are times in, in a person's life where that really might be a beautiful healing necessary time, but what it has to be, um, founded with a uh, create a foundation of, an understanding of like, where are our boundaries? What are we both interested in? What are we each available for? So a, a really lovely, conscious, um, casual sexual experience needs to have that kind of co-created understanding of what are, what's the space that we're entering into. And so we spend a lot of time in the book helping people just feel entitled to understanding their own motivation and distinguishing that and the choice uh, of fear versus love, right? I choose to hook up cause I'm afraid there's nothing else for me, or I'm afraid I am weird if I don't like hooking up versus love choosing something because I really want it. It feels great to me. I know I, um, it's a space of learning and healing and play and escape.
0: Right. Right, I, I enjoyed your framing of it in the book. At first, it kind of jarred me. I was like, oh, no, you're taking a stand for love? Like, sex has to be about love? What are you talking about, Alexandra? <laughs> but then um, what you just explained, that that if we're talking about kind of the paradigm that we operate from and are we, are we choosing things because we're afraid that, you know, if we say no to sex with this person in this moment, we're going to um, suffer some consequence, versus being in a more love-centered place where you're focused on what um what brings you joy in the world mm-hmm. and and what enlivens you. Um yeah, I I would love for every single person to have those kinds of experiences be the foundation of of how they connect with other people sexually. Um Yeah.
1: And sometimes we don't know until we know. Right. So in the book, we also talk about FGOs, which are (laughs) called, you know, these like fucking growth opportunities where it's just like, oh, that is not my best pathway. Like sometimes we have to do it in a way that leaves us feel, you know, like that's just and we have. And so I think around around sexuality, around the sort of like unfolding story of who we are sexually, there has to be a ton of self-compassion, right? Just a lot of gentleness about, okay, so that didn't work for me. What do I wanna learn from that? And what do I want to know going forward?
0: Right, right. So yeah, can we we just give everyone in this moment the permission to make mistakes? And I'm making the little quotey things around Mm -hmm. mistakes, because I think what you're pointing to is that most of these things aren't actual mistakes. They are opportunities that we have to learn about ourselves. And there is that that like aspect of sexuality where there are some things that you're only gonna learn relationally. You're only gonna learn it when you're with another person and experiencing something. Um, it can't all happen. A lot can happen in the privacy of your room, but not all, mm-hmm. not, not all, not all of it. That's right, that's right. So that being said, Let's dive in a little bit to um, what can we do on our own? What are some of those gateways that we were talking about earlier and, and um, you know, physical, developmental, emotional, mm-hmm. mental? So I'm thinking of those pathways in so that everyone listening can have a sense of like, all right, how do I enter into this like, way of reclaiming who I am sexually? Um, what are some places to start?
1: Right. I think so. That the reason that I organized the book the way that I did with these seven different realms um, is that is that we have different. We we all have different journeys. We all have different places where we get kind of locked up. So the the our work is to find. Areas where we feel blocked, constrained, where shame lives, where inhibition lives, where fear lives. And it might be different for different people. Like on my team, so one of one of the seven realms is spirituality. For some people, their early religious training, um, they receive shame-loaded messages that can really, really get in the way of feeling permission to just be who you are as you are. And um, so for one member of my team, the, the work on that chapter was very, very powerful for her. She identified a, a lot of ways in which she was felt hurt by her early religious training, um, how that created shame inside of her. And for another um, a gal who grew up in China without any religion, it really didn't speak to her. She could kind of resonate with this idea of sex as being a spiritual experience. Right. And being something that is sort of transcendent and can tap us into those big feelings of, of whatever, like oneness and, you know, yeah, union. connection to, yeah. But that was for her, that was more about like nature rather than anything that had to do with like a spirituality or a religion. So mm-hmm. that, you know, but, but another chapter for her was really where she identified that her shame loaded stories lived, you know? Um, and so that's, so there are these seven different realms where we may find some work that we need to, to do to kind of identify a block and then, um, and heal it. And so that was why we organized the book the way that we do, because we're all, it's just, there's so much diversity in how we show up sexually and what's challenging for us. And I think for a lot of the, the chapter about physical was important because what's clear is that sometimes body image stuff can get in the way, right? We're in, in, we've got a great partner, we've got a partner who's ready to connect with us and create experiences that are pleasurable and we end up locked in our own heads because we are very, very, very self-critical about our bodies. And that makes sense because there are entire industries that are built on selling us the idea that we are not thin enough, fit enough, whatever enough. And those messages come with us into the bedroom, especially when you know we're naked and exposed and um, feeling vulnerable. And so that can, like, those sort of scripts in our or the tapes that play in our head about like our hips or our stomach, or whatever it is, those sort of body image um, ones, can be a source of inhibition and can really block a sense that we're entitled to feeling good in yeah. the bodies that we live in.
0: So let's just assume that. Almost everyone has something about their body that is like that for them. Mm-hmm. Um, where, like, where would where would we start? What kinds of questions would we ask, or how would we get to the to the heart of the ways that we feel shame about our physical bodies and and take some new steps around that?
1: Mm-hmm. I think there can I think it can be helpful to develop that kind of critical critical eye towards realizing that these messages about our bodies are designed to make us feel insecure so that we buy a product or do a thing that we sort of then when we just mind mindlessly internalize that message we are perpetuating that whole cycle so there's a way in which like sort of a feminist consciousness can be um can inoculate us against those messages so then when the when the thought comes up in our heads we can sort of let it go and come back to something that is more self-compassionate. I think mindfulness, so the, the researcher who wrote the foreword to the book, Dr. Lori Brado is based in Canada and she, um, she, you know, she was really troubled by this finding that almost half of women, especially partner women, struggle with low sexual desire and, and she created a mindfulness training program. I mean, she simply taught women mindfulness skills and then invited them to use those skills in the bedroom. So sometimes it's as simple as noticing the thought come up how do my hips look right now, for example, and then just knowing, oh, that's a thought, that's a thought and sort of letting it pass over and then coming back to sensation. So mindfulness can be a really powerful tool towards helping us notice a troubling thought and then let it go and come back to, um, I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to feeling good. I'm allowed to feel good, uh, in, in this, in this body that I live in. And that can be a helpful shift.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you're pointing to a degree of presence in the bedroom. I love how we keep talking about the bedroom because it could be the kitchen or the living room or, (laughs) you know, public park. Like, you know, take precautions, you know, if there are cops around, like, be careful. But um, but you have to be able to stay to, to stay within you and to notice what's actually happening for you in a moment like that. Alexandra, we have to take a quick break to talk about this week's sponsor. They've become a regular supporter of Relationship Alive, and they have a special offer for you to help you get exactly the kind of support that you need as you're creating that web of support that we so often talk about here on the show. One way that allows you to connect with a professional counselor in an online environment that's safe and private is today's sponsor, BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. Along with scheduling video or phone sessions, you can also chat and text with your therapist. They're affordable, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. So whether it's anxiety, depression, your relationship, stress, grief, or just reclaiming your sexuality... Whatever it is, definitely consider BetterHelp as a way to help you transform your stuck places. And best of all, it's a truly affordable option because as a Relationship Alive listener, you get 10% off your first month with the discount code ALIVE. So why not get started today? go to betterhelp.com/alive, simply fill out their questionnaire which helps them assess your needs and match you with a counselor that you will love. That's betterhelp.com/alive. And thank you BetterHelp for being a supporter of Relationship Alive. Let's get back to our conversation with Alexandra Solomon. So maybe some of these things like around body image are even easier at least initially in a like privately, like in just in front of a mirror, which I think for some of us can also be challenging to stand in front of a mirror naked and look at yourself and and take in the whole picture. Right. Um, right. Yeah.
1: Yep. And just And just um, like, no, like there's a, there's a way in which I think it's really helpful to grieve, like to grieve that I have been doing this around my body for so many years, right? To feel really sad, like let ourselves feel really sad that the only way I, there's a beautiful poem in the book by um, Holly Holden that is just basically like an invitation to like, just being really gentle with our bodies, like really honoring it as this like physical home, right? The source the source of delight of sensation of connection. And, um, and that's a, I think that's a practice. My gosh, I think that's a practice and it's, I don't think we're ever done. And I think those like old stories about how we should look and, and then whatever we think we've figured out, we get a little older and the body changes. You know, it just, it's like this constant journey towards, uh, self love that isn't done, but I think we can get, we can start to get savvier about noticing that I'm doing that to myself again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I have a an interesting story about that, um, something that happened with me recently that's actually not about sex at all, but realizing a place where I had internalized some beliefs. Um, I've spoken a bit on the show off and on about my own um, tendencies to be a little chaotic in terms of how I keep house. and um, And I had this realization that every time I saw a pile of something that... I would have an internal message that would say, there's something wrong with you. Like Hmm. just that pile means there's something wrong with you that you cannot um, keep your, you know, and it might be a pile all of amazing books that I'm reading for the podcast, right? But the fact that it's there and these books aren't in my bookshelf or, you know, whatever it is. And um, what a difference it has made to me since realizing that of seeing a pile and simply saying, there's nothing wrong with you. Like this pile doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And in fact, and I think this is the turn towards self-compassion, right? It's like, in fact, there's nothing wrong with you. Like (laughs) you look at all these amazing books that you have to read, just to use Mm -hmm. that example. So being able to like look in the mirror and look and see your hips or um, whatever part of your body it is and say, oh, wow, like I'm looking at this part of me and thinking there's something wrong with me what is it like to just be like there's nothing wrong with you and mm-hmm. and and what is there to celebrate about this or um how can i embrace the part of me that's judging me and mm-hmm. um and and offer that part some tenderness like oh i mean maybe there's even some grieving there not just in how we do it to ourselves but like this is who i am And I'm not that person that I see on TV or in the porn movie or walking, you know, my next door neighbor, whatever, whoever we're judging ourselves against to be able to be like, okay, that's not me. And now how do I turn to like celebrate who I am and what I have to offer?
1: Yep. 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 And this illusion that like I will I will feel more. X, I will feel more desirable. I will feel more competent if I lose, you know, five more pounds, if I have five fewer piles. Like this idea, like we end up like putting this idea that I'm going to feel okay once I do that thing that's out there. And it's a road to nowhere. Every time I have held up one of those ideas for myself, like I'm going to feel better once this thing happens, I get there and it doesn't, you know, then I just come up with a new thing, right? It's a hamster wheel. And so that is really radical and revolutionary to just find a sense of wholeness right now with the pile, with the curvy hips, you know, with whatever the thing is. It's so just find that sense of I am worthy as I am right now, because that's the only place, like just circle back to sex, like that's the only place from which we can feel entitled to pleasure, right? I can only feel entitled to pleasure if I, you know, allowing myself to feel okay is what then opens me to say, okay, I can be with my partner and let my partner help me feel really good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: or put myself out there to find a partner that I can do that with, right? Like I can only part, you know, that's, that's the, and it's not, I don't know, it's not, it's just a practice. It's to coming back to, I find it helpful to say like, that's my trauma, not my truth. Like when that stuff comes up, like that's my trauma. That's my trauma telling me that I'm awful at this or this is not enough or this is, you know, and then coming back, it's trauma. It's not truth.
0: Right. And those are glorious moments really when you mm-hmm. see it happening. hmm And you like, so when you witness that for yourself, those are the golden opportunities. Um, You know, maybe they're FGGOs, the fucking golden growth opportunities, like where it's it's (laughs) it's happening right there. And you get to see like, oh, I, I carry this with me or this is how I judge myself or this is how I choose partners who reinforce this negative belief system instead of. Partners who celebrate me, Mm -hmm. you know, um, because how often does that happen? Right. Where we choose people who are unconsciously probably reinforcing the ways that we judge ourselves.
1: Yeah. 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 That's maybe an important piece, too, for I think for women who are partnered with men. I think it's that men have, you know, men didn't, you know, any individual man didn't create these wounds, hopefully, I think in abusive relationships, certainly that does happen. But I think a man can be such a powerful ally to a woman. And so I think that um, his there is a piece that's about what, you know, around some of this body image stuff or just that kind of affirmation of I'm just I don't I don't view you that way. Right. I don't when I'm making love to you. I'm not. Just so you know that you may be doing this to yourself, but I'm not doing that to you. And that's that can be lovely. It can't be the whole thing because shame is about my relationship to me. But having a partner who is affirmative or who just even acknowledges like that's not even that doesn't even cross my mind. I don't think about your body in that way when we're together can just be a little like icing on the cake it can't be the whole thing right a man can't any partner can't out love can't love us out of our shame but a partner can certainly be with us and say okay i hear that you're doing that to yourself but i don't i don't do that to you i don't treat you that way and there's something very powerful when it is in a heterosexual dyad um men who are willing to kind of bear witness to that um that's why i I wrote a chapter at the end for an open letter to men whose partners have read this book. Um, whether that's and it may be male allies of or or male partners, intimate partners. Um, just about that's it's hard. I think it's hard as we kind of like reset the balance around this pow- like painful historical patriarchal old stuff. As we try to heal that and reset the balance, there's a beautiful opportunity for men to step in as allies. They can't fix this, but they can certainly be allies.
0: Yeah, that that chapter I think is a a beautiful invitation to how to be curious, how to and how to show up as an ally instead of um, doing things unwittingly that are that are detrimental when you're faced with vulnerability. And I also like that it's an invitation. Um, that chapter to the kind of thing that we've been naming, which is that everyone probably has a place where they can come to understand themselves a little bit better in this way as well and to question what's been handed to them.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: So interesting. So much of this really is um, shame reduction in in some ways, right? Like f- unearthing those places and, and going through the process of getting rid of it. I want to name, um, I was reminded of this when you were talking about Um, religious perspectives on sex and one thing that you mention in your book um, is a study that someone did um, Justin I don't know how you pronounce his last name Lay Miller is that
1: yes yeah Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, about the kinds of fantasies that people tend to have and these are fantasies that people have no matter what their upbringing is though it, as i name them it will be obvious like why they might cause some conflicts for people but <laughs> i want to name these so that you know that other people are thinking about this kind of thing so you don't have to feel bad so 95% um,
1: sorry 95% of people so he found the first thing he found is that 95% of people have sexual fantasies so it is normal to have sexual fantasies okay go
0: <laughs> okay so the first one is multi-partner sex like threesomes and orgies. The second is power, control, and rough sex. The third is novelty, adventure, and variety like things you've never tried, unique settings, having sex in public. The fourth is taboo and forbidden sex like um, watching people have sex, licking someone's feet, having people watch you. Um, The fifth is sharing partners and non-monogamous relationships. These are the top five. It, it took us all the way to number six to get um, passion and romance fantasies. <laughs> so, so that's like down toward the bottom of the list. And then we have um, erotic flexibility like um, gender bending and cross-dressing. And, and um, like this is no matter who you are that people are having fantasies like this. So I hope in hearing this list, you realize like, oh, my God, there's so much. That we are not talking about and and why i think it's so important to have this space to to talk about these things mm-hmm. um, and, um yeah go ahead and
1: fa- and fanti- well and just just to kind of there's this both and of our erotic imaginations are potentially really wild broad deep expansive and we may in our lives not inhabit all that breadth and width. So those that's those are two. That's a both and. You know that we can be expansive and show up. You know with with one partner. So it doesn't. So maybe our fantasies become things we translate into real life, and maybe not. But just the ability to kind of tolerate wow, my sexuality is really big and wide and curious. That's, that's a piece of healing rather than shutting it down. Because the moment we start to shut, shut things down and quarantine them off, that's when things get scary, right? That's when we're more at risk of acting out. If we can't tolerate our own complexity, we are far more likely to act out.
0: Right, so you're talking about creating a space where having those fantasies is okay. Like mm-hmm. we're and even if like so there's a difference, I think, in talking to your partner, let's say, and saying, Oh, I have this fantasy about someone else being in the bedroom with us. There's a difference between saying that and being like and having your partner say, like, Oh, really? Like tell me more about that and like what what might that be like and like let's explore that and and to be received in a very nonjudgmental way versus coming to your partner and saying, I have this fantasy about having someone else with with us in the bedroom and um, his name is Raul and I have his phone number and I'm expecting <laughs> him to come over tonight you know like so there which in itself may not be a bad thing but but I'm just trying to point out here right. that there's a, there's a whole spectrum of what's possible in terms of how we accept each other we accept ourselves then accept each other relationally and create a space for those things to be alive because just naming something like that might fuel your Completely monogamous um, mm-hmm. sexual relationship with your long-term partner that where there's never going to be a third person involved. But the fact that you've been accepted in that way, that your fantasy has been accepted, will be potentially so energizing for you rather than feeling like you have to keep things in the shadows.
1: Beautiful. That's or, yeah. I think that's a great Or that the fact example. that you
0: have it is somehow going to threaten the connection that you have which is i think another piece of like how you communicate about fantasies in ways that are non non-threatening to each other.
1: Well, even just the example that you gave, the Raul example, <laughs> it, <laughs> it really it, it confronts sort of, you know, sometimes we talk about um toxic monogamy, right? This idea that we have, you know, monogamy has certainly been put out, sexual monogamy has been put out out there as the norm and sort of, again, in a hierarchical way as like the best way to love and be loved. And sometimes it it goes so far that it's like any, any attraction, any fantasy that doesn't involve your partner is a, a slight against your partner, right? So that's, then um, there's a way in which, like, when that paradigm is so narrow, it makes all this stuff feel so dangerous and so threatening. Versus just a bit of expansiveness, as you're saying, that, right? Just saying this energizes me. Okay, then who knows where it goes from there? But just, just naming it um, and having a partner who doesn't need to kind of go into that like toxic monogamy space of like, oh my god, if my partner has any erotic energy that isn't directed solely to me all of the time. It means we're doomed. It means I suck. It means we're broken. It means we are doomed. Like that's just way too much pressure.
0: Oh my God. I want to do a whole episode on toxic monogamy, but in lieu of doing that, what would you suggest for partners where that is happening, where, you know, they're, they're unable to broach that topic without it igniting some sort of, uh, rupture in their connection?
1: Right. In the book, I talk about some ways that couples can, and I think talking about sex can be really hard. And if you've been together for, especially if you've been together for a long time and you haven't talked about it, it can be really hard to find a way in. And I think it's a lot of couples struggle to talk. So it's really, it's normal. And given our conversation today, it's understandable, right? How would we ever know how to talk about sex? We certainly aren't taught that in school. And we're, so anyway, so it makes sense why a couple, may struggle to talk about sex, but there may be some scaffolding. So I give a list of examples I have kind of like collected over the years. I met a couple who talks about sex by putting puppets on their hands and the puppets talk about sex. So they put a bit of space between themselves and this conversation by using puppets or something like a book or a sexy scene in a movie like can be maybe a starting point. I'm always happy to have people put this on me. Like, I don't know, I was reading this book or listening to this podcast and they were talking about this and that can be nice, sort of a neutral, you know, third, sort of third party way in Um, and to just have it be framed as, as starting with, I love us. I love us. I love what we're about. I love who we are. I love where we're going. I'm all in on this mission and I want, and I'm interested in this because I love us because I'm excited to expand us. So that really, so foregrounding the positivity And the commitment and the excitement, I think, is also really helpful. Um, And then just being able to name when we're on the receiving end, like, ooh, ouch, okay, I have this urge to get defensive. I have this urge to tell myself a story that you're really saying that you're not happy with me and that I'm not enough for you. And just sometimes just naming that can be like, okay, good, I hear you're doing that. Let's put that off to the side. You know, can we put that in the corner and just keep going? Because I'm not saying that. And sometimes it has to happen in a therapist's office, right? Sometimes, And I think that's a really legit reason to go to therapy. When I have a couple that's coming in after years and years of erotic neglect, I often think to myself, oh, I wish they had felt able to come in sooner and unpack this sooner. Yeah. Because it's a really legitimate question. It's really legitimate to say, I mean, long-term sexual monogamy is challenging, Long term, I mean, just being sexual is challenging. Long term sexual knowledge, monogamy is challenging, and it makes sense that there can be dry spells and breakdowns and miscommunications. And um, sometimes having somebody else there for the conversation is helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So totally agree with you there. Um, and then just to kind of circle back on that. So there's kind of naming and and owning the importance of the connection. So, if you're the person who wants to bring something to your partner, saying like you're important to me, and I'm bringing this to you um, because we are important to me. Um, and then you also named for a partner who's feeling reactive to be able to name that and to recognize, wow, I'm hearing this and I'm being reactive, and um, and so that will. Well, hopefully the act of bringing attention to it, hopefully that can also be held ju- non-judgmentally too, right? Like, it's okay that you are, that this is edgy for you to hear about this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's something in that it's okay. Like, you're okay for having this fantasy. I'm okay for having this reaction. We're going to be okay. Like, we're going to navigate this together with this assumption that we'll get through. We'll be okay. Um, mm-hmm. There may yeah. be work for the the reactive partner in examining their like their own um, self worth issues and and that doing that dance between being able to hear something like that without it, um, you know, going to the core of who they are, or whether they feel like they're being accepted or loved by their partner. Um, yeah, so much there.
1: There's so much there. there, and with the you know thinking about the example of of. Um, you know this if if the question is around right this idea of bringing in a third person or somebody who watches you know it may it's it's an inter- interesting place to go is to ask like what is it about that that's so um, stimulating for you what's so intriguing about that so that's an interesting that's a more interesting question than when will it happen or sh- who should it be and maybe it happens and maybe it never happens but we but to start way 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 back at the beginning about tell me more as we said tell me more about what how that stimulates you. Like, what's so exciting about that? Like, what is the kind of like juice there within that narrative? Like, who do you get to be in that story? Who do, who am I in that story? Like understanding and being curious about the charge, the yearning, um, may that just, that curiosity may be enough to kind of, um, satisfy it and play with that energy, versus actually bringing in a third person and, and you know, who knows But well, we don't, we can separate the outcome from the process and the process may, may be maybe one that's very enlivening and engaging separate and apart from whatever happens in real life with the actual fantasy.
0: Right. Right. The purpose of a fantasy isn't necessarily that it has to happen.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, there's something that just crossed my mind that I'm hoping you can shed some light on because it, it jumped out at me when I was, and, and it was back in this part about fantasies. Um, uh, I love the puppets thing, by the way. There was something else you named there, which was um, couples talking about themselves in the third person. That was one I hadn't heard before, but I, I really, like, she really enjoys it when you do this, and he, you know, feels really vulnerable in this moment, just as a way of getting that enough of that distance, but... Yep. But it also feels like it could be really fun and cool to be narrating what's happening as it's happening. Yeah, I don't know. I like that.
1: Totally. Absolutely. Right, right, right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so the fantasy thing was because we're talking about reclaiming your sexuality and that a, an important piece of that is reclaiming it so that it comes from the inside out, as you named at the very beginning. So that your sexuality isn't developing in relation to what other how other people see you and how other people think of you and I lost the page, so I'm not going to be able to read it exactly. But there was this category of fantasy that was about being seen and appreciated and uh-huh. um, right. Oh, here it is. Object object of desire, oh. self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. And. I'm interested in this like the dance between it actually is really compelling to be the object of someone's desire which in a way is about how you're being seen and noticing that you're being seen but without having your desirability be based on how people see you do you see like where it's
1: <laughs> it's so complicated yeah yes the, so right so the uh, so the object of desire is this idea that in and the research has found that this is something that is more compelling, more stimulating for women than for men. But the idea that somebody sees me as desirable spikes, my desire being wanted spikes, my desire. And, um, and, and that it's, that is, it helps me. And it's about like t- helping me tap into me. I just was, I just did an Instagram, an IG, uh, TV video about this. So last weekend I was heading home from the gym and I texted my husband and I said, will you go shopping with me today? And it, it was so clear to me, um, what I was wanting. So, you know, this book launch, I want a couple of new dresses and I, I really, I want to, I know how I want to feel at these upcoming events. And so I certainly could have gone shopping myself, obviously. And I have, but, but the idea of him kind of being, you know, in, in the dressing room, like down the hall, I go try something on, I come down the hall and, you know, show him. And and it's not even about him saying thumbs up or thumbs down or him saying you look beautiful. It's about him holding space while I feel beautiful. It's a mm-hmm. subtle but important difference, right? What I was saying is, can you be like the base note? Can you hold a steady base note while I do this thing that I do, where I play and different colors, different textures, and like I find pathways into my own sense of my own experience of my beauty, my aliveness. Will you, but will you be with me while that happens? It's a really subtle difference, and it's, and it is, um, and it's an important pathway for me and for a lot of women as the research shows to connection to the erotic is this idea that you're watching basically you're watching me feel into my own erotic self my own alive self yeah and I think that sometimes I think sometimes it feels like it could feel transactional right like I'm asking for him to do something for me but it's not transactional. It's just an an invitation to connection. Like this is, this is for me. What I know about me is this for me is powerfully connecting. Will you join me in that?
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something in there of really how you, how you know yourself and you know that this is going to be something that's going to really feel good. That will bring you pleasure. Mm-hmm. And, um yeah. And so, so knowing yourself in that way, being able to communicate it, what were you going to say? I saw you.
1: Well, just that it's been, it's been this, I mean, Todd, my, Todd and I have been together forever, but like, I have memories of like, I-, I love to dance. Like dance is a humongous part of me and he hates it. So there would be times at parties where literally I'd be like, can you just stand on the dance floor? Like I would, and I would like use him like a prop. He would just stand there and I would <laughs> dance around him. Like I'm just, I just need you with me while I do this thing that really is good for both of us, right? It's good for both of us because I I get to feel the way that I know I want to feel to kind of show up, you know, with you to feel close to you. Um, it's just fun. It's just it's just such a part of our and I think that's part of it too is that now in year whatever of our relationship these kinds of things him going shopping with me also has that like circular sense of it reminds me and reminds us of how we used to be and who we used to be we used to shop together a lot when you know i was from the suburb of detroit and he lived in chicago and i would come visit him and um, we would go shopping on michigan avenue i'd never been to chicago so it also had this like element of reminiscing which is also really good for couples right to tap into who they used to be Mm -hmm. that's very connecting and intimacy you know Provoking, inspiring.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, Alexandra, I I really appreciate one of the many things that I appreciate about appreciate about you and your work is how well you bring together so many different writers and thinkers and um and put it all together in a way that's really practical and just like loving bravely was a very practical book um taking sexy back is another great example of how you pull all these things together and and it becomes a very useful manual for diving in so i hope that you listening that you've gotten a, a taste of that and just how much practical information is here along with um ways of talking about sexuality that illuminate um, the challenges that that we face. So so much of that is seeing like, oh, right, this is a challenge. Like, this is shame that I carry with me. This is a story that I carry with me. This is how my partner and I are missing each other. Having awareness of that, um, you do such a great job of of illuminating that for the reader, um, something I really appreciated. Um, And um, in what you were just talking about, I was thinking about how we identify what we like and what we don't like. And you bring up, um, Emily Nagoski's work, um, around, um, the dual, what's it again, the dual, dual control model. Right. So there are those things that excite us. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, just that, that we have our sexual desire functions with an accelerator and a brake. So as you were going to say, things that excite us and things that shut us down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what you were just offering is, I think, a great example of that, or at least that's how it showed up for me. Like, oh, right. This is Alexandra knowing this. This gets me going like and inviting Todd, your husband, into the dance with you. That's right. Versus
1: playing Yahtzee, which is going to just slam my brake real hard (laughs) playing Yahtzee, doing anything that's kind of competitive with him really, really shuts me down for not now for another person that might be incredibly um, connecting, right? And like, gets, you know, gets them going to be competitive to be, I just know for myself. No, hard. No.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So interesting
1: it's so idiosyncratic and and it's that's why that's right that's why the whole thing about sexual self-awareness really understanding ourselves is so vital and so valuable.
0: Well, Alexandra Solomon, thank you so much for being with us here today. Your book Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want, is a valuable addition to anyone's self-growth or relationship growth library. And um, if you want a transcript of today's episode, there's so much that we've talked about. You can visit neilsatin.com slash sexy or text the word passion to the number 33444. And uh, also if you wanna find out more about Alexandra and her work, you can visit Dr. D. R. Alexandra where you can find out all about her, what she's doing, where she's speaking. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you're on Instagram as well. What's your Instagram handle?
1: Dr. Alexandra Solomon.
0: Okay. That's, I haven't really figured out how to play in that world, so I'm glad you are doing it.
1: Oh, it is a world.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a world.
0: Thank you so much for being here with me today, Alexandra.
1: Thank you, Neil.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive Community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.